following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the weekly Dharma series. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Welcome, everyone. Last couple of weeks, I've been digging in to a new series of talks having to do with Ajahn Chah, this very well-known Thai meditation master, passed away in 1992. And if you'd like to read along, you can get a hold of a copy of the book, Food for the Heart, published by Wisdom Publications, or just more generally, authors many PDF booklets online by Ajahn Chah. I think also some YouTube videos um, that they filmed before he passed away in teaching. And you can just get a sense through your own research, your own study of the teachings of Ajahn Chah. Early on, uh, as Westerners began to arrive in Thailand in the late 60s and 70s, people would ask, you know, why are so many Westerners drawn to practice with you? You don't even speak the language. They don't speak Thai. How does that work? And sometimes he'd pour some hot water in a cup and he'd put his finger in it and he'd talk about, you know, it doesn't matter if you call it hot water or, you know, whatever hot water is in Thai or Lao or any other language. We know that experience. That experience is one thing, regardless of what it's called. Another time, when asked a similar question about why Westerners are showing up, how he teaches Westerners. He gave the example of domestic animals or farm animals, you know, how they get trained to do whatever they have to do. They don't speak, you know, we don't speak the language of the cow or the ox or the pig or whatever. Yet there's a way that we communicate. And he talked about, you know, when people are veering off the road to the left, he taps them to the right. When people are veering off the road to the right, he taps them to the left. And basically, modeling. This is you know, the great gift of being around wise people. If you ever have that opportunity to live with or be around wise people, people have practiced for a long time or have natural wisdom. It's so easy to be skillful, you know, just to, in a sense, be in the vicinity under the umbrella of somebody who's really wise and loving and skillful. It's just relatively easy for us to come into sync and to be skillful for a while. It's one of the advantages of spiritual community. Not that we're all perfect here, but, you know, there's usually moments of perfection when you have a group of 50 or 60 or 70 people, maybe somebody is relatively wise, peaceful, skillful in that moment, and uh, sort of is the example for the rest of us. In that booklet I read a little bit from last week, Twain Shall Meet, this is something you can download from the internet. Written by Ajahn Jayasara, one of the senior Western disciples of Ajahn Chah. And he's talking about the Westerners arriving. So it's a little bit of history. He quotes Ajahn Chah saying, 
even though I have a lot of Western disciples living with me, I don't give them I don't give them so much formal instruction. I lead I lead them in the practice. If you do good, you get good results. If you do bad, you get bad results. I give them the opportunity to see that. When they practice sincerely, they get good results. And so they develop conviction in what they're doing. They don't just come here to read books. They really do the practice. They abandon whatever is bad in their heart, and goodness arises in its place. This would be a really instructive attitude for us to have, regardless of whether we're around a wise teacher or not. Just being in our life and noticing, you know, if we do good, we get good results. If we do bad, we get bad results. Now, often we don't know whether we're doing good or bad, but we do notice if we're getting bad or good results. We notice when the mind gets entangled, when the mind's heavy. Then we can reflect back. I wonder, what was it that the mind was doing that contributed to these entanglements, this weight that I now feel in my heart? Or when we're feeling really light and loving, connected and whole and resilient, spacious with conditions, then we can just sort of have that reflection. Hmm. I wonder what it is. I wonder what the mind has been, what the mind's been doing that has allowed for this clarity, this lightness, this ease, this skill. Always looking in terms of cause and effect. So last week uh, I reviewed Ajahn Chah's talk on basically repeating the Buddha's first talk, setting the wheel of Dhamma in motion, setting these teachings on awakening in motion. So Ajahn Chah was summarizing that first talk the Buddha gave and basically talking about the path is all about bringing mindfulness to three areas of our life, bringing mindfulness to our relationships with others in the world, bringing this wise, mindful attention to the mind itself and the qualities of the mind, and bringing wise, mindful attention to the view of the mind. And I think the best way to think about this path that Ajahn Chah has been talking about in this book and the Buddha earlier on laid out for us is that we need to bring wise, mindful attention to everything. And just to help us, we can think about it along the spectrum. At one end, really subtle. At the other end, gross or more concrete. So, at this gross end, this is the area of sila, of taking responsibility for all of the different relationships we have with other people, and including ourselves, our body. And we're bringing that wise, mindful attention. Remember, mindfulness more technically means that we're constantly recollecting, oh, it's like this. We're mindfully aware that, oh, this is how it is. This is what's being done. And the wisdom piece that goes hand in hand with mindfulness is that this discerning function of the mind. So, like if you have a relationship with a partner or a relationship with someone at work or a relationship with your own body, it's not enough just to recollect that, oh, this is being known. This is how it is now. But we want to be discerning the way it is. Like, is the way this relationship is unfolding, 
is it stressful? Are we suffering in this relationship? Or is it really harmonious and beautiful, this relationship? So, you know, it's not enough to know that right now, being in the same room together, we're all relating to each other. Whether we talk or not, we're all relating here. And the question is, you know, is this way of relating skillful or not? This is this area of mindfulness. Are we interested enough in all the different relationships we have? The person we're sitting next to on the bus, the person we've been married to or in a partnership with for a long time. Are we interested in the integrity and the quality of that relationship? Is it wholesome or not? Is it stressful or not? Is it leading onward towards suffering or is it leading onward towards healing and release and happiness? This is the, these are the kind of questions we want to have. It encourages this ongoing discernment. We want to be interested in how we're relating. And then the middle ground is between the really gross and the really subtle is this mindful, this wise, mindful awareness of the mind itself. The easy way to think about this in the Buddhist tradition is to be really fluent with the five hindrances and the seven factors of awakening. So we just have a sense that how do we pay attention to the mind? Well, is there any craving in the mind right now? Wanting things to be other than they are. Is there any aversion in the mind right now? Not liking something. Is there any dullness? The absence of energy? Any uh, imbalance of having too much energy? Restlessness? Any pervasive doubt? Where the mind is staying? Who am I? What am I? What am I supposed to be doing? What's going on? So, this part of practice, instead of, you know, in terms of our ethical relationships, our relationships we have with other people, even with ourselves. You know, here, we're interested in the ecology of our relationships with external things. Here, we're interested in the ecology of our relationship with internal things. Like, how is the mind relating to the movement of personality, the movement of thought, the movement of emotion? How is it relating? Is it relating with aversion, with greed? with dullness, with restlessness, with doubt? Or is it relating with clarity, with joy, with interest, with calm, with stillness, with equanimity? Is it skillful or unskillful? So here we're interested in the skillfulness or unskillfulness of our relationships. Here we're interested in the skillfulness or unskillfulness of the mental activity. And over here, in the most subtle part of our practice, we're interested in the skillfulness or unskillfulness of our underlying view. You know, in a simple way, we can begin to discern that when the view is a self-centered view, we're living, we have the sense now, for example, that, yeah, I'm here at Common Ground Meditation Center. I'm a deluded human being. I want to wake up and be a better person. And I'm here at common ground in order to do that. And you can just sort of discern when the mind's in balance, relatively clear, relatively quiet, relatively happy, then we might be able to discern, oh, there's something heavy in that view. Even that relatively wholesome view of, I'm a deluded human being who wants to wake up and be a good person. We can discern that taking 
that idea personally is tight. There's some suffering, some stress involved. We can have another view, like, this is how it is now. There's no self in that. It's true, right? Having that view that seeing is like this now, or hearing is like this now, or sensing this body is like this now. That's a that's a truth. In the same way we might think I'm a deluded human being who's trying to wake up and be a good person, both sort of pass the basic sense of truthfulness, but one is truthful in a relative sense, and there's a, when when the mind is really subtle, we see that there's something extra in that view of thinking, like constructing the thought, the notion, I'm you know, I'm this person who is imperfect and wants to become perfect, or at least more perfect. But from a practice point of view, from a deeper point of view, what we'd call in Buddhism right view, uh, non-self-centered view, we would recognize, well, this is how it is. So if there's pain, we notice, well, this is how it is, there's pain being known. Or if there's happiness, oh, this is how it is, happiness is being known. So we're not projecting or constructing a sense of self. And just this is the practice. Just to bring mindfulness to all this whole spectrum, from the most subtle, being interested, being awake to the view when we can, when the mind is balanced enough to see the view operating. Of course, most of the time we're so wrapped up in life, we don't even realize that there's an underlying view, let alone what that underlying view is. Someone could say, hey, I think you have a self-centered view, and We'll look and we'll say, you know, this is just who I am. It's not about a view. It's like, it doesn't occur to us that it's a view. It's just who I am. It's only when the mind is really still and balanced and peaceful that that subtle activity of taking a stance, being a somebody, living a life, is seen as a particular view. And when it can be seen, it can also be released. But if it's not seen... There's no way to go beyond it. And the great thing about understanding this spectrum, mindfulness, wise mindfulness of our relationships, wise mindfulness of the mind itself, wise mindfulness of this particular aspect of mind which we call view, or wisdom. The wonderful thing about this is that it really frees us up to practice all day long. You know, one of the things that might come up from time to time as we study Ajahn Chah's teachings, you know, maybe lamenting our, our relatively, you know, ordinary and not so special environment. You know, we're not in Thailand and with a great respected meditation master practicing as a nun or a monk with ideal conditions. No responsibilities to earn a living, you know, no children to raise, no intimate relationships to negotiate, have the whole day to practice. It's very easy for us to idealize another situation. But the fact is, this situation is just fine for practice. Because we have relationships, we have a mind, and we have a view. And it's just a matter of waking up, waking up to that, being wise and mindful. Mindful means we're recognizing that this is how it is, this is being known. And the wisdom piece 
is that discerning, like seeing how it's going. Is it going to help? You know, are we acting, living, thinking in a way that's causing things to get tight and heavy? Are we thinking, acting, viewing things in a way that's loosening everything up, freeing everything up? This is uh, from the book, Food for the Heart. Ajita is talking about this. To think you can't practice as a lay person is to lose track of the path completely. Why is it that people can find the incentive to do other things? If they feel they are lacking something, they make an effort to obtain it. If there's sufficient desire, people can do anything. Some say, I haven't got time to practice the Dhamma. I say, then how do you have time to breathe? The practice of Dhamma isn't something you have to go running around, around for or exhaust yourself over. Just look at the feeling that arises in your mind. When the eye sees forms, ear hears sounds, nose smells odors, and so on, they all come from this one mind, the one who knows. Now, when the mind perceives these things, what happens? If we like that object, we experience pleasure. If we dislike it, we experience displeasure. That's all there is to it. And Ajahn Chah, you know, he really emphasized this point of practice throughout the day. I've been talking about Ajahn Sumedho over the last few weeks, the senior Western monk, student of Ajahn Chah, who's now just recently retired as the abbot of Amaravati in England, of one of the major Western Buddhist monasteries. And, uh, you know, he has many stories to talk about, or to tell, rather, about just how Ajahn Chah emphasized practice throughout the day. When he arrived at Wapapang, Ajahn Chah's monastery in northeast Thailand, he had already ordained, had been ordained as a monk for a year, and had practiced in a very secluded place. Um, he didn't have too many responsibilities. Uh, he was a monk that he basically just did his practice for that first year. And so, in a sense, you would think it's ideal. But he, for some reason, he, he really understood he needed a teacher. It wasn't enough just to be practicing on his own. So he went to Ajahn Chai and uh, asked to practice with him and told Ajahn Chai how he was meditating and what his practice of meditation was like. And Ajahn Tomato had had some really powerful meditative experiences over that year. But Ajahn Chai didn't really, he just sort of grunted according to this um, way Ajahn Tomato reported it. He just sort of grunted, yeah, that's fine. You know, not so interested in his meditation practice, but really wanting him to absorb into the life, the monastic life, the community life, which is really nitpicky. You know, the details in the Vinaya, the monastic code, 227 rules for the monks and 230 some, I forget exactly how many for the nuns. So a lot of these rules. And one example he gives is, you know, just the obsession around the rules and how upsetting it was for him the detail and the nitpickiness of all of these monastic rules, like if you tear your robe, your lower robe, and it's further than four inches above the hem, then you have to sew it 
before daybreak of the next day, once it's ripped. You can't let it go, otherwise it's a, an offense, you know, and then you have to make amends, depending on how serious the offense is. And there are many, many of these sort of seemingly trivial rules that can feel quite oppressive, and your sitting cloth, and the hem, the edge of that, and how that is, and all the different um, code of ethics or um, sort of the etiquette of how you relate to more senior monks and less senior monks. And this thought just would reoccur, and I just made his mind. So I came all this way to be obsessed about these nitpicky details of the monastic life. This is what it's about? Could this possibly be useful? And this is a lot like what lay life is like. There are all these nitpicky things we have to deal with at work, you know, do it the way the boss wants us to do it, or just our culture. I mean, I don't know about you, but just dealing with taxes, you know, I consider myself relatively smart. I had a good education. It's not easy to take care of my taxes. It's not even easy to prepare my taxes, the tax information to give to my accountant, let alone do them on my own. I mean, it, there's just so many things. Just negotiating our relationships are really complicated. How to stay married or how to stay in a partnership is complicated. How to take care of aging parents is complicated. How to take care of our body. Like, should we really get our teeth cleaned twice a year? Like, how important that is that? Or floss your teeth. You know, and in the great scheme of things, let alone, you know, should we have, get immunized by, you know, with these different shots, or get the flu shot, or letting life, like monastic life, like any life, is complicated. There are a lot of details. And we can either use it as a cause for suffering, you know, lamenting the terrible life that we have, craving some idealistic notion of what life would be perfect for us, where we wouldn't have problems. But that's not the path. You know, that's not the path the Buddha taught. It's not the path that Ajahn Chah especially emphasized. Really this wholehearted commitment to life all the details of life, really seeing them as teachers, just noticing what happens. Because at every moment of our ordinary life, we have what is what we call, in the Buddhist, Buddhist business, sense contact. You know, we're constantly being impinged upon by what we see, what we hear, what we think, what we touch, what we smell, what we taste, and anything else that I'm missing. <laughs> Five physical senses and thinking. This is it. This is always how we experience the world. There's no other way to experience the world. Every moment we're experiencing the world in these six ways, and every time we have sense contact, there's a feeling. The Ajahn says, the real practice takes place when the mind encounters a sense object. That's the place to practice, where sense contact occurs. When there's sense contact, we either like it, or we don't like it, or it's neutral. It's always that way. If you don't know whether you like a sense contact, a sense experience or not, then you can just consider it right now it's neutral, because I don't know whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. <clears throat> I don't know whether to move away from it, because it's unpleasant, or to grab a hold of it, because it's pleasant. 
So we tend to ignore those things, right? We tend to ignore what's ordinary <clears throat> or experiences that we don't clearly recognize as being pleasant or unpleasant. And we tend to grasp, hold, crave those things that we see as pleasant. We tend to push away, get angry about things that are unpleasant. And this is the place, this is exactly the place where liberation, where happiness, all of the good stuff, this is where it occurs. This is really an important point. It may seem obvious, but it's actually quite important. And Ajahn makes it in this chapter, chapter 3. He says, where there is confusion is where peace can arise. When confusion is penetrated with understanding, wisdom, what remains is peace. So, whatever you imagine peace to be, or liberation, or nirvana, or nirvana, or happiness to be, what he's saying, and what the Buddha is saying, is that that happiness, or whatever that good thing is that we all seek, it arises right in the place where there's sense contact, and the mind's tendency is to relate to it in a way that involves stress. If it's pleasant, then the stress arises because we want it. We want to hold on, we want it to last. If it's unpleasant, the stress arises because we don't want it. We want to get rid of it, it's not fair, we're afraid of it, we're bored by it, we're irritated by it. If it's neutral, we're stressed because we don't want to know it. And even that, it may not seem stressful, but even not wanting to know it is stressful. Not caring about it is stressful. Not thinking it's important is a burden on the mind. So the freedom, the real release comes not from getting to heaven, as we might imagine, you know, getting to that utopian place where everybody loves me and my body feels good, got everything that I've ever wanted. That's not the happiness. The happiness arises, the, hap- the spiritual happiness, the full, unshakable release happens in any moment when there's sense contact, but the heart, the mind, isn't confused by it. It understands the sense contact with the right view. This is being known. And it's not doing anything in addition. It's not ignoring what's being known. It's not attached, holding, craving what's being known. And it's not afraid or averse, fearful or angry at what's being known. That actually is the happiness the heart seeks. Even if we don't really get that, it's really important to reflect on that because it strips away a lot of the idealism that we have in life. Thinking about, you know, I often joke about my attraction to having a beautiful place in the country or a beautiful place on the south shore of Lake Superior. You know, and where common ground can have a few cabins where people could do their practice and groups of people in the community could go and practice together and get to know each other and develop useful, deep dharma friendships. Or I have a, my own perfect little cabin, not too complicated, well insulated, <coughs> big windows with big open views, cool in the summer, warm in the winter, you know, all the right things. And it's so easy, you know, that's a, I think that's a pretty beautiful vision. (laughs) But I notice it hurts. 
you know, to have a beautiful vision hurts if there's attachment. If there's a rejection of this moment, oh, not this, yeah, that, then that's the stress that the heart feels. But if that image, if that idea about a beautiful place in the country comes up, but the mind is very aware, it's not ignoring it, it's not attached to it, it's not afraid of it, it's not afraid to move in that direction, but it doesn't, it isn't reinforcing a sense of need or dependency, that in order to be happy, that has to happen. This is what we do with happiness. We're always postponing it. I'll be happy when I get rid of this knee pain. All of a sudden, after many years of not having much physical pain in my sitting posture, now it's like my hips hurt, my knees hurt, my legs hurt. That's just in the last six months or so. It's like, well, that doesn't seem fair. <laughs> now, there are people who have lots of pain in sitting. I was one of the fortunate ones. But all of a sudden, we can feel betrayed because... You know, and and now it's like, oh boy, well, it will go away. Well, maybe it won't. And so we can get in this postponing, like, well, I'll be happy later when this, you know, when this physical ailment is over with, is done with. In that same uh, area, in that chapter 3, Ajahn Chah says, if we still don't know likes and dislikes as they arise, then there will still be some anxiety in our mind. So if we're not, he's saying, if we're not aware of this liking and disliking, if we're not aware of aversion and uh, craving, then guaranteed we're going to suffer. There will be stress. If we know the truth about them, he says, we reflect, oh, there's nothing to this feeling of liking here. It's just a feeling that arises and passes away. Dislike, too, is just a feeling that arises and passes away. What make anything out of that? If we think that pleasure and pain are personal possessions, then we're in for trouble. And these problems feed each other in an endless chain. This is how things are for most people. In Buddhism, we call this samsara, the cycles of suffering, where our <clears throat> confusion around the experience of liking and disliking, we can't actually help the feeling tone, like, when I see or hear or touch certain things, it's just going to be unpleasant because that's how my mind is conditioned. I can't stop, you know, you know, whatever it might be for people. Like really fishy things. I don't like, you know, and uh, sort of repulsive to me. Now other people, they really like fishy things. I don't like fishy things. And that would be, you know, it would take a lot, you know, very specific experiences over a certain amount of time to undo that conditioning in my mind. But that's, I don't need to undo that conditioning in order to be free. I just have to practice not being confused by the unpleasantness of fishy things. Other things I find very pleasant, you know. I find cotton sheets very pleasant, you know. I find, you know, big open spaces really pleasant. A lot of things I find pleasant. But if I can, if I take it personally, as Ajahn Chah says, then I will personally want to hold on to it. I will personally want it to make it mine. It's not enough to know that the South Shore of Lake Superior exists. I want to own a piece of it. I want it to be mine. And I don't want to be bothered by my neighbors either. You know, and that, that 
personal attachment, that's stressful. But the big space of the South Shore of Lake Superior, it in itself isn't stressful. But the mind's dependency on it, that's stressful. So we can have things that are pleasant, and we can have things that are unpleasant, and we can have things that are neutral. But just because there are pleasant and unpleasant and neutral experiences doesn't mean there needs to be suffering. It's just a matter of our view. And it's a real powerful change in our relationship to the world. It's what the Buddha and Ajahn Chah talk about is this middle way. The middle way means that on the one hand, the heart, the mind is willing to be present, willing to be alert, willing to be like not afraid of pleasant experiences. Some people think that to be a Buddhist or to be somebody on a spiritual path, we have to be careful with pleasant experience. It's dangerous to have pleasant experience. No, it's not true, actually. Pleasant experience is really necessary on the path. And one of the reasons we develop meditation practice is because we start to experience a lot of pleasantness, sometimes at least, in meditation practice. And having really wholesome friendships, living a harmonious life, we do that because it's really pleasant. The Buddha calls this the bliss of blamelessness. You go to bed at night and you don't have a lot of remorse for being a jerk all day long. You feel good when you go to bed because you've been generous and kind and patient and shared what you have. So, pleasantness is important in life. We don't want to be afraid of it. So, we want to be willing to show up with all of our experiences, not afraid of what's unpleasant, not ignoring what's neutral, and really present with what's pleasant, too. Just not without the attachment, without the dependency. Really enjoying or appreciating the pleasant experiences without attachment. Knowing that they're here for a while. I, we had a big party on Friday night with my family. Come, came over to my house with my wife and I. Providing the dinner, most of the dinner. And we had lots of ice cream and lots of that was left. And now it's almost gone. And it's like... You know, to really appreciate it's when it's there, but then it will be gone. And then that's okay. I mean, there can be that sense of loss even, but we don't need to create a dependency or a sense of suffering. Somebody is suffering. I've decided to do a two-day retreat tomorrow and Friday. I don't, I cleared my schedule, and my wife is at a conference in LA, so that's a quiet time. And now it's like I notice as it's getting closer, oh yeah, I could do a little work tomorrow, it'd be nice to catch up on my emails, and oh yeah, it'd be nice to do this project and that project, and maybe even a little fear, like, just me and my mind, are you kidding? <laughs> um, so, but maybe that, maybe it will be a little bit unpleasant at times, and a little bit pleasant at times. But maybe that's okay. Maybe it's okay to have unpleasant. I mean, it will be unpleasant. Like, even if I were to sort of say, okay, you can, you know, read the news or listen to the news. Well, that's not really that pleasant anyway. You know, it's interesting that what we take to be pleasant and what we take to be unpleasant, it's really that, it isn't that way intrinsically. It's that way because that's what we think it is. That's what we're conditioned to believe. It's like, Caviar is fishy, and if you're conditioned to think that's fishy, 
you're not going to want to put it in your mouth. But if you're conditioned to think this is a delicacy and I'm so grateful that I have the opportunity to eat it, well, you're going to have a different kind of experience. And this is the freedom we can have, but it requires what in Buddhism we call, and it sounds really provocative to say it this way, seeing the limitations of the world. But what, what the Buddha, what Ajahn Chah means by this, and I'll just read this paragraph and, and sort of reflect on it and then open it up for discussion. So in this area, in this chapter, in the same area where these other two quotes came from, he says, so where are you going to find happiness in this world? Do you expect everyone to say only pleasant things to you all your life? Is that possible? If it's not possible, then where are you going to go? The world is simply like... The world is simply like this. We must know the world. Know the truth of this world. The world is something we should clearly understand. The Buddha lived in this world. He experienced family life, but he saw its limitation and detached himself from them. Now, how are you, as lay people, going to practice? If you want to practice, you must make an effort to follow the path. If you persevere with the practice, you too will see the limitations of this world and be able to let go. Now, it sounds like Ajahn Chah here, when he says, you'll see the limitations of the world and let go, doesn't that sound like, oh, the world is a bad place? You know, it's a dangerous place. And this stereotype of, like, getting ourselves to some cave, which is, of course, the world. <laughs> you know, it's the cave world as opposed to the Minneapolis world, but it's still the world. You don't get away from the world going to the cave. But that's what we think. So what we have to be intelligent about these statements. It's not easy to talk about the past. So we have to reflect, well, what does that mean to let go of the world, to see the limitations of the world? What might the Buddha, what might Ajahn Chah mean by the limitations of the world? And he's talking about what he said earlier about this tendency to be confused. Where there is confusion is where peace can arise. When confusion is penetrated by understanding, what remains is peace. So that's a powerful statement. So, to go beyond the world is we have to notice how the world pushes our buttons all the time. Every time I think about the South Shore, you know, desire arises, craving arises. And I'm not liking this moment comes right with that. Oh, this isn't so good because I don't have that yet. But when I get that, whatever that might be for each of us, just being home in bed, that may be it for you. You know, or whatever, getting to Friday. So just when we, right, right, right where there's that confusion, that's where there's peace. So we're confused by our experience in the world. It isn't about getting rid of the world. It's about being right with the world, right with experience, but not, not confused by it. What are we confused by? Well, we're confused by the feeling that arises in conjunction with our sense experience, or sense contact. So that makes it really clear. It's actually quite simple. Going beyond the world, letting go of the world, means being right in the middle of the world, because there's no choice. There is no choice but being right in the middle of the world. The only question is, what are we going to do when we're right in the middle of the world? 
Right? Because as long as we're alive, we're sensitive. And if we're sensitive, that's what we mean by being in the world. But can we be in the world sensitive, having sense experiences endlessly, but not confused by them? Not being thrown around by the sense experiences that are arising. So we go through the rest of today. There are going to be moments that are neutral, moments that are pleasant, moments that are unpleasant. And the question is, can we be, can the heart be unmoved by the experiences that are arising? That unmoved does not mean distancing ourselves. That's what we call a shadow to this practice. It may look like practice from a superficial point of view. I don't care. The world is bad. I'm detached. We even use that word detached. It's probably better to use a word like non-attachment. Because detached really has that flavor of indifference. I don't care. It's, it's just the world. Instead, we, we want to have this sense of moving right into the middle. Letting wisdom help us move right into the middle. Now, to do that, we have to have the confidence that wisdom gives us. Like non-fear. Not afraid of being sensitive. And so, one of the reasons this practice is so confusing is one of the things that's emphasized a lot in the beginning is retreating. Like, go to a quiet place and sit down. So it sounds like the world, the busy world, the world of sense experience is dangerous and we go to, you know, a room without a lot of clutter and we sit still, try to have a relatively quiet space. But the point is to develop the calm, the balance, and then the wisdom that allows us to go back into the world. You know, the Buddha lived a very active life. Sure, he meditated a lot of the day. But a lot of the day, he was just dealing with all kinds of things. I mean, it isn't easy to run an organization of monks and nuns and lay people. It isn't easy to sort of just be out in nature. Most of the time, they lived in the outdoors, little platforms or you know, little huts in the forest, dealing with the mosquitoes and the creepy crawlers and this and the that, and the heat and the humidity and the rogues and all the endless little rules. It was like our life. Maybe harder. Probably harder back then. So it's so easy to think that, uh, well, of course I'm upset. Of course I want things to be different. Of course I'm disconnected. We, we feel justified in reacting to our sense experiences. But if we just take a close look, we realize it doesn't make sense. So we develop skill by going to relatively quiet places where our life, our sense contacts are relatively simple. Feeling the breeze from the fan against the skin, hearing the sound of the blower, hearing somebody breathing a little loudly next to us, feeling the ache in the knee. I mean, these are the kinds of experiences we have when we're sitting. Repetitive thoughts, you know, background of anxiety. But they're relatively simple relative to how it is out in the world when we're busy doing whatever we do in our lives. And so in that relatively quiet place, we develop this confidence and this wisdom to be intimate, to be profoundly sensitive, sitting right up in the middle of our life, but unmoved, 
That's why there's this archetype of stillness. You know, we hold the body still in the formal meditation practice because it's reminding it's a, a metaphor for the heart being profoundly sensitive but unmoved. It's like letting life move through us, letting sense experience move right through. But it's not bumping up against anything. It's not bumping up against a personal view. I don't like this, or I like this. I want this to last, or I don't care about this. And so instead of thinking of uh, um, seeing the limitations of the world and being unmoved by the world as somehow disconnecting from the world, the real test is being right in the middle of the world, being really in our relationships in the world, engaged in the world, aware of all the feeling that's arising because of our sense experience, not afraid of strong attraction, not afraid of strong aversion, just not being confused by, oh, this is that, this is that strong emotion, strong desire. I'll just end with this story and open it up. I remember being in one of, uh, I think one of the three-month retreats at IMS, Inside Meditation Society in Massachusetts, and uh, I was just starting to notice this very powerful quality of greed or craving. It was more of an existential ache, and it felt like this energetic wormhole, like like had no boundaries of just uh, desire without an object, like the ache of wanting something. But it was a very alive thing, not a fixed thing, like a just a churning. But it wasn't about anything. It was nothing I really wanted. And it had somehow just kind of come online in my practice. And there would be times when I could either sit or even in walking practice, I'd just stop if I was walking or just sitting. And it would it was such a powerfully clear meditation object. Just feeling that feeling. But not being confused by it. Not being confused that because I was feeling that, there must be an object that I wanted. Or other times, for, you know, as a predominant experience for days on end, feeling a background of terror, of real fear. But it wasn't fear about something. There was nothing I was afraid of. It was raw, the raw movement of fear. Without the confusion, without taking the pain of that fear personally. And so this is how we can relate to both the specific cravings and fears and indifference that we experience in life, and the more profound, archetypal cravings and fear, anxiety that we come across at times. It's like, well, yeah, that's how it is now. Can that be okay? Is it possible for the heart and mind to be unmoved? And this is really what we mean by the middle way, both sensitive, but also unmoved, relaxed, allowing things to be. So I'll leave it here. Any thoughts you have from your own practice you'd like to share with the group? Or questions? Yeah, Derek. Um, thinking about desire, I think like a really complicated relationship with ice cream. And it actually helps. Oh, sorry. I have a really complicated relationship with ice cream where I like this sweet. And there will really be these pernicious thought patterns where I'll physically be moved to go get them. And I'll try to rein it. I'll be able to recognize that I really want ice cream. And I accept that. And try to 
Restraint really should come from a, a joyful place, a pl- ain't it a playful place, uh, where we have enough confidence. Yeah, I could, I could, I could go do that. Wouldn't be that much problem. But wouldn't it be interesting just to see the force of desire? And you can't really see it unless you restrain yourself. You know, decide not to go, not to get at that time. And then it's just so interesting. Like fasting is one of these things. You know, there are a lot of possibly at least a lot of help. Reason, uh, reasons for health to fast. But forget about that. It's just so interesting. You learn so much about the mind. Just decide to skip a meal. You know, there it is. You have every right to eat your lunch. It's 12 o'clock. You know, you haven't eaten in several hours. And then you say, what? Wouldn't it be interesting to not eat lunch and just see what happens in the mind? And like, all the manipulative ways, but that's long enough, it's 12.15, I've observed the desire long enough, you know, now I'll go eat. And it's just, it's very funny and instructive to play with it, but you really want to do it on that level. Coming at it from a more of a parental, judgmental, uh, tends to backfire, as you're suggesting, Derek. Of course, some things we want to refrain from because they're actually dangerous. If we engage it, it really is unhealthy or it really is dangerous in some way. But then we can use compassion. So instead of that hard-ass, you shouldn't, you know, we want to generate, we want to discover, because it's going to be there. If you reflect on the on the probable causes, conditions that will unfold from that action, and let them scare you, you know, that's the good thing. This is the good thing about imagination. We can... Imagine what will happen if we do that very clearly, and then we'll get a taste of the fear or the pain that we'll actually experience if that comes to be, and then we can use it now to refrain from doing it. But it will either be enough or it won't. So we try our best, like if it actually is dangerous, to refrain, or we're interested in just seeing what happens if we refrain. But then it may not be enough, and then we'll end up doing it. But the key is not to give in in the sense of stopping the mindfulness. We may go get the ice cream, but don't stop being mindful just because you've so, you know, in a sense have failed at refraining from eating that ice cream. Be interested in it. Like, how much pleasure is there in the ice cream? Like, really see the limitations of that pleasure. You know, and part of the exuberance, the pleasure, is just constructive. I mean, maybe there is something inherently pleasant about the smoothness and sweetness and coolness of the ice cream. And then if you like those crunchy things in it, <laughs> and the contrast, now you can get, you know, ice cream with salt in it and cayenne in it. And I mean, it's just amazing. So many possibilities. <laughs> and now, the, the, one of the nice things is, at the co-op, they have a new gelato that has this great container that you've probably seen this. This great hard plastic container, you know, and it's just so useful, it's so functional to have those containers after you finish the gelato. So, one more reason. So, the, the, the deal is, when we do get in, involved in aversion and craving, when we're acting it out, the key is to stay mindful because we'll learn from that. We'll really see, well, what do, what does the heart get from having made this choice? Is it what I thought it was going to be? 
you know, is the, that we build up this promise, if I have that, then, you know, I'll be happy. Well, let's see, let's check that out. I can really see the ephemeral nature of sense pleasures and the ephemeral nature of pains. Think about how many uh, moments of anxiety and fear we've had about our life and that we've moved on through. But it always felt like when we were on the cusp, it always felt like, oh, there's no way I can go through that. But yet we do. We have to remember that and really see that. It changes our relationship to the next scary, painful thing that arises. Thanks, Derek. I guess you're the only one <laughs> trusted to ice cream. Other thoughts people have? Yeah, huh. Understanding it for years, yeah. Um, that's really instructive, I think. And I think you're talking about this part of the path here where that phrase for you shifts the view. You know, from wrong, a relatively wrong view, which is, I've got to do something, you know, the self-centered view, to this is how it is now. This is just something being known. And if there's something to do, you can do it, like you said, but if there isn't something to do, it's okay, because it's just something being known. It's just an unpleasant feeling being known. And that's that uh, right view. The view of non, not taking it personally. Not a non-self-centered view. So any way we can activate that view, remember that view, will directly, in that moment, as you suggest, experience the freedom. And we have to leave it here. It's uh, 9 o'clock. Thanks all for your comments and questions. And we'll take a few seconds, just take a breath together. Let go of the words.
grateful for our life as our teacher. And may our lives unfold in a way leading to great wisdom and compassion be a cause for peace in the world. Thanks again, everyone, for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.